again to Podiatry Today Podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the managing editor here at Podiatry Today. For our latest episode, I'm thrilled to welcome two dynamic surgeons who are sharing their experiences with surgical intervention for hammer toe deformities. Both Dr. Emily Quinn and Dr. Jacqueline Donovan are board certified by the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery in both foot surgery and reconstructive rear foot and ankle surgery. Dr. Donovan is also fellowship trained in foot and ankle orthopedic trauma and has been affiliated with residency training since completing her fellowship. Dr. Quinn currently practices as an associate podiatrist with Ankle and Foot Associates in Southern Georgia. Doctors, welcome to the podcast. In general, when looking at surgical intervention for hammer toes, do you prefer arthrodesis or arthroplasty and why? I think... um... From my standpoint, it's identifying the correct deformity first before you actually jump into how do you fix it. If it's a more rigid deformity at the PIPJ or the DIPJ, go with an arthrodesis. If it's more of a flexible deformity, I'm more apt to go with an arthroplasty personally. I don't know, Dr. Donovan, what do you think? I 110% agree. And I will say that we both train together. So we have very similar points of view on this. Um, So we won't really... (laughs) go against each other, but I really look at the deformity before surgery and make sure that it is reducible. And if it is not reducible, that's when I use a K-wire. For the DIP, I tend not to take down that joint because I've seen so many patients hate when their nail grows back deformed after someone else does their surgery. Of course, I don't do that. Um, But I started to not take down the DIPJ regardless, even if it is rigid and just kind of do a flexor tenotomy and hold it with a K-wire but that PIP, I do an arthrodesis if it is a rigid deformity and arthroplasty if it's reducible. So on that same note, when you are looking at fixation, whether it be for arthrodesis or just stability for that arthroplasty, what are your thoughts on an implant versus K-wire? I have a lot of opinions on this. Really, you have to think about what you're going to do to remove hardware for any procedure from toe to rear foot to ankle replacements, X-fixes, Think about if this goes wrong, your patient's going to come back to you as your sur- as the primary surgeon to remove that hardware. So taking it out, you need to have a plan to do so. So the implants, I have a difficult time wrapping my head around them, but I'm pretty gun ho with doing K-wires. The caveat to that is 2-0 screws, I think are reasonable to pass, cannulated past the DIP and just put them in the PIP because to find those is pretty easy with a guide wire. But I, like I said, I'm pretty opinionated that I think KORS is, is the best option for this because removal is so tough with implants. Uh, my go-to is a K-wire for 90% of my digital deformities. You know, the K-wire has the ability to cross all of the joints if necessary into the metatarsal phalangeal joint. It also has a cost-benefit analysis where, you know, hospital systems and surgery centers prefer that. You know, the one the couple times I will use, you know, a implant itself is in a revisional case. Um, and then you have the, do you do a cannulated, do not do a cannulated, do you do a one part or a two part? I don't really have a preference. It kind of depends on the individual specific deformity that I'm going after. What do you try to do to avoid the pitfalls that could be associated with K-wire, such as, you know, pin tract infection and things like that? Do you feel like you're a little more conservative in your post-operative course or does it not really change your algorithm at all. So I find that older ladies with osteopenic bone, it is a little bit tougher. So you need to use a larger K-wire. And in those patients, 
I tend to keep them off their foot a little bit longer, but it's still three weeks non-weight bearing. And then I let them weight bear in a walking boot. So I think using a larger K wire helps uh, hold the, hold the bone a little bit better and not let it fall out as easy. Pintract infections, I have a very low percentage of this and just have them see them a lot post-operatively, see them at least on a weekly basis or bi-weekly basis to do the dressing changes and don't leave that up to them. I'm a little different in that I let, if I'm doing isolated toes, they're walking the day of surgery, either in a Darko shoe or a boot. After stitches come out, I'm letting them shower. They're doing pin care with just rubbing alcohol at the base of the pin. And then I'm having them stabilize the pin with a Band-Aid. I've had very, I have had some randomly fall out. So the patient says, um, <laughs> not sure how that happens yet. And I mean, the percentage of pin tract infections with K-wires is, a, is around 15% in general. So I just think educating the patient on what to look for and how to care for them is the most important. Absolutely. I mean, if it does get infected, give them seven to 10 days of oral antibiotics. It's a pretty easy fix versus an implant and trying to remove it when it fails and struggling for hours, which I've been in and I'd much rather handle the pin tract infection for me in my hands. If you do get that pin tract infection, do you automatically take the pin out or is there an argument on your side to leave it in? I remove the pin and then I rely on handy dandy taping or a splint or some sort of a Darko splint to hold the toe in the deformity or in the corrected deformity during the healing process. I think it kind of depends on how bad is the clinical symptoms, where in the um, course of treatment you are. I mean, if you get that pin tract infection at that two weeks and it's just a little bit red, a little bit swollen, I will try just an oral antibiotic, check them back in three to five days. If it's not better, then I'll pull the pin. If it's better, I'll let the pin stay in and complete the full course of the antibiotic. If they're at week five or four, then I'm just going to pull the pin out because it's done its job at this point. Both of you pull the pin usually around the four week mark or? You Normally different- I like to get to six, but I'm as long as they can get to four, um, I'm normally pretty happy. And then yeah, I'll stick to like, it. Keep it in as long as, the same with X-fixes, as long as they last, we're keeping it in. What are your thoughts on the role of the first ray specifically when it comes to lesser hammer toes? So if there is a first ray deformity that needs to be addressed at the same time as the lesser deformities, otherwise the recurrence rate of those lesser deformities Um, is significantly higher. So I absolutely agree with this. And this is when a hammer toe turns into a four foot slam very quickly because you have to address the hallux deformity or the first TMT deformity with these hammer toes. With that being said, the fifth toe is a caveat. I think the fifth toe you can address separately, which is my arch nemesis, but three and four have to be addressed with one. You can't kind of separate the two if there is deformities at one. Do you ever feel like patients are a little resistant to that thought? You know, if they have a hallux valgus deformity, but really they're symptomatic at that second toe, do you have any particular tips or thoughts on how best to communicate the importance of looking at that whole foot and not just the only the symptomatic area? I think x-rays are very helpful in explaining that to patients. And typically on their first visit, I take that time because I have designated time for a new patient evaluation to go through and explain the etiology of the issue. And I think making sure the patients understand that before they leave the office on the first visit, show them the x-rays and show them why their toe is being elevated if it's a second, moving on to the third and fourth toes at the first initial appointment, and then tell them surgery is an option. And then when they come back, typically they have wrapped their head around that concept. 
I agree. It, it all comes down to educating the patient on, you know, the etiology associated with the deformities and why they've occurred to begin with. Dr. Donovan, you alluded a little earlier to the nuances that go along with the fifth toe. So looking at those specifically, what type of surgical planning do you do for fifth toe contractures, or are there any specific technique pearls or planning pearls that you'd like to share? So number one, don't overlook the Taylor's bunion that needs to be addressed if there's an adductal varus deformity at the fifth. Also, my number one indication for a fifth toe surgery isn't cosmesis. It's when there's a painful IPK because nine times out of 10, that adductal varus rotation will come back, but you're trying to reduce the pain and the symptoms associated with that IPK. So having the patient's expectations that likely these can recur, but we're removing the painful IPK really has helped me and my patient's expectations and satisfaction rate after these surgeries. Also, there's, I find very frequently there's an excess dosis at the lateral side of the DIP. So every time I go in now, just to cover myself, I go in with a power rasp and I smooth down that lateral surface of the DIP just to ensure I offload it as much as possible. I absolutely agree. The other things that I look at is you, you got to think the soft tissue deformity that has occurred, whether you need to add skin plasties or flexor tenotomies or releases at the MPJ, because it's normally not just a sagittal plane deformity. As you alluded to, there's either an avaris or there's um, frontal plane, transverse plane. All the planes are often evaluated in this fifth toe deformity. So looking at hammer toes where there could be a predislocation syndrome or plantar plate pathology, what type of approach do you take to these cases? I'm very emphatic about this too, like I am everything else. But in residency, we did a paper on this, direct plantar plate repair. And when I was doing the paper, it was so mundane. And I thought everyone did this. It was very common. And now I'm using that paper to back me up as an attending, which I think is very ironic. But I think the planner plate or planner approach to the planner plate repair is phenomenal. I think it's the easiest thing. It's low cost. Use a UR6 needle, repair the, the planner plate and hold the toe in a reduced deformity. And I think this is something we overlook a ton in the world of podiatry because a lot of the deformity is at that second MPJ and you have to do a while. And I'm really emphatically say you have to do a planner plate repair more commonly than not. And it does not have any increased risk of scarring, which our paper showed, and um, patient satisfaction is phenomenal with this, with this approach. I, I do a direct planner plate repair as well. You know, in your acute deformities, those are the isolated ones where you can go in without addressing the medial column. So I think, again, not losing and just isolating on what you see in, in the toe, you've got to look at the whole forefoot in general. As I've gotten into practice, I have done more forefoot slams than I ever imagined. Uh, and you know, forefoot slam is doing the first toe through five and having a ton of incisions and a ton of closure. And I think it's because you can't overlook that first ray. I mean, it is extremely, extremely important in addressing the other toes. In looking at plantar plate repair and some of these other deformities, certainly plain radiographs are going to be the, the primary method of evaluation. But when you're getting into some of the more intricate soft tissue, do you ever get advanced imaging to see what you're working with preoperatively? And if so, under what circumstances? I would love to order advanced imaging on every single patient of mine, but it's more tools in my toolbox to, to give to the patient to show them the problem and have them understand, right? So in certain areas, you have great ultrasound um, radiation techs, you have great radiologists, MSK radiologists, 
unfortunately, where I am currently, I don't have that with me. So I have to rely on my clinical knowledge and my x-rays and I am in search of one. So if I can send these patients across the country to get a good MSK radiologist at this point, I'm dying to do so. But I think it's very, very helpful when patients see that on a piece of paper from more than just you. When they see another doctor saying there's a plantar plate tear, it's a phenomenal resource for us as a physician to say, this is the problem, this is why you need it fixed. Like you said, it's hard to coerce patients to say, you know, we need to address your first ray and two through five but when you have that saying that there's a plantar plate tear, it really does help significantly. I use um, intra-office ultrasound on my suspected plantar plate tears, and I have pretty good results, and patients love seeing the picture. Can you and see if, them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, and it's nice because as you go to dorsal flex the toe to watch the motion of the ligament, you can see gapping, you can see inflammation. Oftentimes, I will get an MRI if I can't fully see it, and then on the MRI, on a good image, you can see the full tear and you can see joint fluid. So I often will pull in an extra image if I need to. And I will leave a plug for podiatry today because you do have a procedure, plantar plate procedure. By, I think it's Dr. Heyer and Peterson on the podiatry today website. Yes, actually, that's our January 2014 surgical pearls column correcting the crossover toe with direct plantar plate repair. So what about revisional cases? Um, how do you address cases where a previous surgical intervention may have failed? So revisional hammer toes are hard. And I think that's the first thing you tell the patient is that this is not going to be perfect. And it's setting that expectation of we're going to solve the problem, whether that's pain or swelling or callus formation or preventing ulcers. Um, and then again, identifying the correct area of the deformity my go-to for revision, it's normally, you know, what I see in my revisional cases is it's either chronic swelling due to um, a fibrous union or a non-union. So that's when I'll pull and do the implant versus actually doing a K-wire. Most patients, most patients who have had a K-wire hammer toe done, they don't want it done again. <laughs> I second Dr. Quinn on that. I think the 2-0 cannulated screw is a great thing for revisional cases and just place it across the DIP and PIP and hold it as rigid as possible. Uh, as a first line of treatment, patients complain of a too rigid of a toe. So that's why I would leave that for um, a revisional case. Absolutely. And then if you're removing an implant, then you just kind of get what you get at that point. I mean, some of these implants pop through the bone and they have pain and the toe becomes de- more deformed after the surgery if the implant displaces. So at that point, you do bail out to using a K-wire and just reduce the deformity as well. And that's when I keep those K-wires in upwards of the six week mark, because you're trying to let everything scar in again in an already scarred in area. And also I would say, make sure all of the correct deformities were addressed the first time. So maybe something was overlooked on the medial column. Maybe something was overlooked at the MPJ. Maybe the extensors weren't lengthened. The flexors weren't addressed, or there's some underlying equinus that's uh, alluding to all of this. So I'd really focus on addressing all the deformities and thinking about these patients a little bit, a little bit more than just looking at their hammer toes. What are your thoughts about when you might employ, say, a flexor tendon transfer? The lovely girl stone. So one of our attendings in residency, that's all he did for every hammer toe. You know, people have their, their procedure and that was his procedure. And I felt they were so rigid postoperatively. So again, for as we were talking about the 2-0 cannulated screw, I think for revisions, it's phenomenal. 
but I find that patients don't like that super rigid toe with the flexor transfer. I don't do a lot of them. Um, I normally save them for like a revisional case or in addition to maybe a plantar plate that just needs a little bit more stabilization. I do see that, and maybe it's a technique error on my part, but they tend to swell and patients don't like swollen toes. Well, post-op swelling is definitely something that I think even despite the best techniques, docs run into a lot with their patients. And I'm sure it's, it's a concern that patients bring up to them. Do you give your patients any particular advice as far as what to expect and for how long? And do you have any uh, edema management techniques that you feel have been really helpful? I find time in the operating room really does affect my post-operative swelling. So the patients I get in and out of the operating room, I'm efficient. They're, we decrease the time under the tourniquet. I find that their swelling is does very, very well. I also implement tubi grip on almost every single one of my post-operative patients and Jones compression wraps on anyone who has a touch of venous swelling preoperatively. I typically tell patients swelling can last six months to a year after surgery. And when they're complaining about swelling, it's usually a good sign that their pain is under control. And those are typically my taglines that I tell patients. I pretty much tell them the same thing. I like to implement the silicone uh, gel sleeves. If I'm just doing like an isolated swollen toe, you know, they can always take them on, put them off as they want. Most of the time when they complain of swelling, they're not having pain. What about flexor tenotomies? Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion at conferences and in the literature about the utility of isolated flexor tenotomies, perhaps you know minimally invasive techniques thereof, for some patients who may not be able to undergo typical hammer toe reduction. Have you found this to be helpful in your practice in any instances, or is it something that just has not been as applicable to your patients? I feel like this is an entire other podcast is just talking about flexor tenotomies. I love flexor tenotomies. I love them too. I love them They're too. Powerful patients. Patients love how quick they heal from them. Um, you know, primarily my go-to is, you know, that distal toe callus that just needs offloaded in your diabetic. You, know, you can prevent a lot of trouble by doing that. Diabetics and older populations, these are phenomenal on my younger patients. I offer it to them, but I tell them it typically will recur. And then we're going to the operating room the second time. Another podiatrist does flexor tenotomies three or four times on patients. And I've had to deal with those revisions and it is a entire scar, scar ball that is adherent to the skin. And at that point, you have to remove the skin to reduce the deformity because it's so scarred in. So I say flexor tenotomies are phenomenal if you do with them once. After one time, you have to take them to the operating room and do an arthroplasty or an arthrodesis. For your flexor tenotomies, do you allow weight bearing immediately after? What's your typical post-op protocol? dressing for 24 hours. And as long as they're not oozing or bleeding, I use an 18 gauge needle. Um, as long as they're not oozing or bleeding, there's no activity restrictions. I use a 62 blade, but same thing. I have them come in three to five days after I remove the dressing and then let them go on their way. There's almost no swelling whatsoever. Patient satisfaction is phenomenal. But again, I try and educate them that it can come back. So they're not super angry with me if we have to go to the operating room. Is there anything that either of you do postoperatively long-term to help prevent recurrence? Are, are orthotics part of your typical post-op long-term protocol for patients that have had hammer toe surgery? Are there other things where you check them on a regular basis? I'll occasionally use an orthotic, but that's more for like if I did metatarsal work or I'm trying to offload different areas. 
for isolated hematos, I normally don't have any follow-up after they've healed unless they come back with any other trouble. One thing I've found very important as I'm aging in this, in this field is shoe gear and shoe education. So when I was in residency and I would hear attendings talk about shoes, I was like, this is so, I don't even care about this information. I don't, I'm not a shoe store salesman, but as I have aged and I have had some more experience, I'm realizing that patients legitimately do not know what type of shoes to buy. And one of the biggest factors that affects people's hammer toes and pain is the shoes that they're wearing and they choose to wear. So what I usually recommend is a cloth toe box to patients. So I'll say even same thing with edema control. You need a cloth toe box without stitching and leather, leather on leather on leather and all that pressure on the toes when there's edema. Also post-operatively, if they stay away from shoes with a lot of pressure from the leather and stitching, they'll stay out of, stay out of trouble. As soon as they start wearing shoes that will irritate the hammer toes, then they're right back in your office again. So again, on that new patient visit, when patients come in with hammer toes, before I even mention surgery, I talk to them about shoe gear. I show them pictures and I give them a list of four or five different shoes to buy, which again is a change in my practice than I was initially because I was all surgical. And now I'm really managing those post-ops with shoe gear education in the beginning saves me time on those post-op appointments as well. What about those patients that have first IPJ mallet toes? Mallet toes to me, a flexor tenotomy does absolutely nothing. So that's when I would never do a flexor tenotomy and you should never say never. And I just did, but I do think an IPJ fusion is so powerful and works so well for patients when they have issues at the IPJ and the post-op recovery is very minimal. That that's my go-to procedure for any, any mallet toe deformity. So I will do a flexor tenotomy on the first. And I mean, it obviously comes down to patient selection and what you're trying to fix um, or prevent. And then in my fusion cases, oftentimes you've got that extensus deformity at the MPJ. So you've got to do that tendon transfer um, to reduce that deformity there. God, you just debunked me, Dr. Klein. How dare you? That's my job. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked quite a lot about our focus today, which is on surgical treatments for hammer toes, but what about conservative management? Have you found any particular methods to be particularly impactful for your patients? What can you share with us there? So conservative management to me, like we talked about earlier, shoe gear education is huge. And these lovely silicone gel sleeves that you can buy at CVS, I give them out like candy in my office. I find that patients love leaving with something. They feel like there's something that they have to help protect their their foot to offload. And I typically say, if you love it, keep it and wear it if it helps you. If it doesn't, throw it in the trash. And I think that those silicone gel sleeves are phenomenal. Now, if there's metatarsal pain or metatarsalgia pain, capsulitis, things of that nature, that's when I try and kind of mimic an orthotic with the metatarsal pad, do a strapping with that to offload the second MPJ. They have a second hammer toe and they have pain there. This works for you. We're stimulating an orthotic, which will really help your pain and your symptoms. Same thing for Taylor's bunion pain if it's sub fifth MPJ, which I think helps tremendously. I'm so glad both of you could join us today and thank you for sharing your experiences and insights with us. I think podiatrists definitely appreciate the intricacies of hammer toe deformities and today's discussion certainly supports that. Don't forget the Podiatry Today podcast can be found on the podiatrytoday.com website along with Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, and other preferred podcast platforms. 
Tune in again soon for more highlights from thought leaders in foot and ankle medicine and surgery. And follow us on social media or through e-newsletters to find out when the latest podcasts are launched. Thank you.